Hi there. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. Today, we're going to look at a new kind of way of thinking about contemplation. We're going to look at it from a philosophical point of view. We're going to be looking at a book called Midlife, a Philo philosophical guide by a man named Kieran Satia, who's a professor of philosophy at MIT. I'm actually having Dr. Satia on the podcast, I think the next time, to talk a little more about this stuff. And um, so it's a contemplative look at stuff, but it's not from a religious point of view in any way. It's from a philosophical point of view. Uh, I heard about him because I read a positive review of his book, Midlife, in, I'm forgetting where it was. Was it The Atlantic? Was it Vox? It was something like that. And I thought, you're speaking my language. I'm somewhere in midlife, and uh, those are questions I have. So I picked up the book. I thought it was terrific. Satya talks about how he began to have a midlife crisis of his own at about 35, which seems a little bit young for classic midlife crisis. Um, but then he it has a very grounded sort of real world way of looking at the questions of midlife. So initially, I listened to it, I think, on a library copy of an audio book. And uh, so I would be driving here and there, and he would bring up, you know, midlife and loss or midlife and impending death or things like that. And he would he would bring up the various subjects. I would go, oh, my God, yes, absolutely, yes. And on the other hand, I would think, well, you know, I am a, you know, a Christian. I am a person who thinks about deeper thoughts from a God perspective. And there are answers to some of these that um, the kind of the Christian tradition would historically give to these questions and that I don't, I don't dismiss. And so I think as I look at those answers, I think, okay, well, maybe that's not my story. So I found myself toggling between just the human condition where I was thinking, absolutely, that that's me to a T, and then sort of a a cosmological look at the universe, which would answer some of those questions, still not all of those questions. And then I would be comforted in that way and I would go back and forth. So anyway, maybe you'll find yourself in the same position. We've looked at this in these groups that we have online, which of course you are welcome to check out, journey-on.net. We'll tell you more about them, journey-on.net. And we, we looked at this there and um, the vast majority of the people in our groups loved it. Uh, but there's the occasional person who found it a little annoying because it didn't go into the the kind of religious answer to some of these questions. So you'll have to decide what's your what's your taste. But if you're looking for a thoughtful look at midlife crisis, I think you could do a whole lot worse than starting from here. So I'm indebted to either Vox or The Atlantic, I'm forgetting which, for uh, for giving me the heads up. And I will look forward to talking to Mr. Satya soon or Dr. Satya soon and filling you all in on what he has to say and letting you hear it. All right. Let's get moving with On Midlife Crisis. So Satya starts us off by talking about a famous thing, this thing called the U-curve of happiness, with which I was familiar. It's an argument that if you do happiness surveys at different life stages, are you happy and however they test such things, Happiness, I believe, if I'm remembering, is pretty low actually in one's 20s because, you know, it's stressful trying to set yourself up. But then it gets better and better and better. And um, But then in one's 40s, it begins to drop until it hits a trough at age 46, which would be the classic midlife crisis sort of time. And then it actually gets better. And so the usefulness when I have heard about the U-curve of happiness is if you're in that kind of mid-40s range, which I have been in my life, um, you should know it gets better, uh, statistically, not for any given person. Obviously, any given person can have whatever life arc they want. So here's what Satya says about it. He says, the U-curve describes a phase of relative unhappiness that correlates with middle age. 
the same time, the U curve is not irrelevant to more extreme conditions. So if average life satisfaction, as we said, is lowest at 46, and there's a variation around the norm, a certain proportion of people below being above average and a certain proportion below, we would expect emotional trauma to peak at roughly that age, which is what these researchers that he cites say they saw. Looking at the incidence of depression and anxiety in a UK labor force survey, they found that the likelihood topped out around 45, with a rate roughly four times that of, of being depressed or anxious, that of teenagers, and three times that of older adults. It's worse right in that mid-40s thing. So then he looks at um, how philosophers have talked about this, and he gives an extended look at the philosopher, maybe you read about in your school days, John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill famously was raised to kind of be a philosopher by his dad, and he came out of this what tradition of Benthamism, utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So Mill was uh, trying to be a great philosopher. His dad's plan worked like a dream on the one hand, but then in midlife, he had a famously terrible midlife crisis. Um, Satya tells us that John Stuart Mill's breakdown illustrates the paradox of altruism, he says. And he says, I don't mean the alleged paradox of understanding how altruistic behavior is even possible, but the previously unnamed paradox implicit in Jackie Robinson's aphorism, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives, which sounds good, right? Life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. The young Mill, says Satya, might have agreed with Robinson, but the idea is ultimately incoherent. The suggestion in Robinson's remark is that the value of everything we do is what we philosophers, I suppose, would call instrumental. Its value lies in its effects on other people. It's a, it's a means, not an end. But what is the value of those other lives and the activities that occupy them? If it, too, is instrumental, it depends on the value of its effect on still other people. And the value of those effects depend in terms on their effects on other people, which depend in turn on their effects, etc. Value is perpetually deferred. Think of the quip attributed to W.H. Auden. The poet is capable of every conceit but that of the social worker. We are all here on earth to help others. What on earth the others are here for, I don't know. What Mill calls the important change in his opinions, what got him out of his midlife crisis, was that for the first time, this is quoting Mill, I think, he gave its proper place among the prime necessities of human well-being to the internal culture of the individual. He looked inside, what kind of nurtured him. By this, he meant the expression and refinement of human feelings and the appreciation of art. He, as Satya tells us, got particularly into Wordsworth. And this hints at the importance of the contemplative life in midlife. So again, this is the pocket contemplative, and this is a little hint at it. And since he is about to take us looking at Aristotle, I don't think what Aristotle is call, calling contemplation is exactly the same thing as what we've talked about as contemplation here, which is from the Christian and, and other religious traditions um, or cultural traditions. But, um, but there's overlap. Anyway, you'll get a sense of it. In Aristotle's terms, the contemplative life is, quote, final without qualification. It is, quote, desirable in itself and never for the sake of something else. This can sound bizarre, as though we should prize contemplation for being useless. What's so great about that? But what matters to Aristotle, says Satya, is not that contemplation serves no purpose, but that its value is wholly positive. It doesn't respond to trouble or imperfection, to suffering and strife. It's gloriously redundant. So the problem then with Mill's earlier life, Satya continues, was that it gave no hint of what's worth doing except to reduce the scale of human suffering. That's why we live. It's the Jackie Robinson thing. If the best we could hope for is not to suffer, to live a life that's not positively bad, why bother to live life at all? 
So in this view, midlife is the time to take up golf, the most existential of all activities, or salsa dancing or playing piano. Instead of feeling let down by the mundanity of our adjustment to middle age, we should see things the other way around. Our idle pastimes are more profound than we may have thought. So for Aristotle, again, this is all Satya, activities of existential value are fit for immortality. They could belong to an ideal life. So when you play Monopoly with friends or read a book for pleasure, you have a share in the life of the gods. And then Satya, who does a lot of, on the one hand, on the other handing in his book, philosopher that he is, says, I don't agree with Aristotle. When the demands of life are pressing, too urgent to be ignored, it would be a mistake to devote all day to contemplation, reading Wordsworth, or playing golf. Being mortal, think of mortal things. Yet, if you lose touch with existential value, this is where Satya gives credence to the Aristotelian and John Stuart Mill way of looking at things. If you find no place in your life for the activities of the gods, ones that make life worth living to begin with, you do risk a midlife crisis, not unlike John Stuart Mill's. If you have the opportunity, you should make yourself immortal some of the time. So then he gets into kind of what makes midlife crisis famously or midlife sometimes hard, which can lead on occasion to crises. Well, one thing is a pervasive sense of having missed out. He says the average 40-year-old has had 13 jobs and is looking to move at any time. Her tree has more branches, a fractal intricacy inherited by the life she has not lived. So all those 13 jobs, you could have gone any one of those directions. And so at that point, whatever you didn't do is this loss. Why do we face the problem of unsatisfied desire even when things go well? Why is midlife missing out? And that all, as he was talking about a lot of that, it totally hit me. And on the one hand, he's going to explain why that nonetheless, while I can feel that yearning of choices not taken and things I've missed out on, and so can he, and he's going to tell parts of his own story in just a minute of how he feels that. So as I was listening to this on my drives, I think, oh man, I totally feel that. On the other hand, it wasn't clear that I would trade what I have for some hypothetical other life. And so both could be true in ways that proved to be interesting in the ways that Tia talked about it. Anyway, he says, to wish for a life without loss is to wish for a profound impoverishment in the world or in your capacity to engage with it, a drastic limiting of horizon. There is consolation in the fact that missing out, feeling like you you didn't get some opportunity that you kind of yearn, you wish you'd had, that's an inexorable side effect of the richness of human life. It reflects, strangely, something wonderful, that there is so much to love and that it's so so various that one history couldn't encompass it all. I like that. You know, again, I remember where I was was when I listened to that. Ah, that kind of hit me at a deep level. It's like, on the one hand, that sense is he's talking about the, the road not taken that you regret. And there are plenty of roads not taken that would have been fun if they'd worked out for me, for sure. Um, that is, I feel like, oh, man, that's, I feel the yearning of that. You know, I'm just, I'm stuck with the life I have, which I, I wouldn't trade in ways he's going to def- tell me why I wouldn't trade them in just a minute. But he gives another spin, right? That somehow the fact that we even have yearnings for things that could have happened but didn't is actually maybe a good thing and something we wouldn't want not to have in our lives because it reflects a really rich life where there were possibilities that we are not just on one track and only one track from birth to death, that we have choices and that that's good. If we don't have any any true loss, one sense we don't have the richness of the world that we actually live in. Although he says... I may regret, regret, desire that no desire go unfulfilled. I cannot in the end prefer to have desires that could be fully met. The sense of loss is real, but it's something to concede, not to wish away. Again, as I was just saying, 
So he suggests that we embrace our losses as fair payment for the surplus of being alive. I thought it was just beautiful. Nora Ephron, he says, writes, anything you think is wrong with your body at the age of 35, you will be nostalgic for at the age of 45. Aging is a corporeal symbol of the progressive diminution of prospects, Satya continues. Youth, in contrast, stands for undiminished powers and a future as replete with possibilities as it will ever be. So here's going to get into options, aging to some degree as we get, we get less of them. It's all in front of us. How do we feel about that? He says, if I do not regret the way my life has gone, which he tells us he does not, what is the appeal of having alternatives as I once did? Why wish for options that I would not take? Am I simply confused? It does make sense to wish for options, to resent the confinement of one's position, even when things go well. There's no way now, and then he, he goes back to tell us a story, that in his youth, there had been three possible trajectories his life could have gone. One in the arts, he was a poet, interested in being a poet. One in medicine, his dad was a doctor, and he felt put some pressure on him to be a doctor. And then what he ultimately chose, his interest in philosophy. And if I'm remembering, what he basically says is, looking back, he feels like the choice he probably should have made was being a doctor. Because it's the reason he didn't make it is just that he felt pressured by his dad, and so he re, you know rebelled against the pressure and went a different direction. But you know, thinking about his interests and financial remuneration or whatever the lifestyle would have been, that actually would have been the more sensible choice, and he didn't take it. So anyway, that's what he's going to start talking about. There is no way now to be a poet or a doctor of the sort I once conceived. While there are reasons to change one's life, frustrating jobs, failed marriages, poor health, the appeal of change itself can be deceptive. That now we've in midlife, we're on a track. It's going to be pretty difficult to get off this track at this stage. We're, we're trapped, we can feel. So if only I had the options I had when I was a kid. He says, but that, that's kind of deceptive. Because there's value in having options, you're going to miss having them. It's an argument for nostalgia. But the value is easy to overrate. It's silly to think that having options can make up for reaching options you would not prefer considered alone. Think twice before you wreck your home right? The classic story of the midlife person who has an affair because they just want to feel free to explore and things like that at the cost of what they already have. Is the, the, the temptation to wreck one's home the space inside that you hate, the space inside your home? Or is it the fact that it has walls, that just you don't feel options? So he says, my younger self was sheltered somehow from the ache of unsatisfied desire. But at midlife, we get exposed. Emotionally, there's a fundamental difference between knowing that I will miss out on something good, which, we, of course, we know when we're younger, and knowing what, knowing that I won't achieve all of my ambitions and knowing which ones I don't achieve. So then he gets into this paradox, and the paradox is, I say this in air quotes, I have regrets, but I have no regrets, which speaks to, I think, my situation and his as well. Psychologist Janet Landman cites a Gallup poll conducted in 1949, which asked a national sample of adults, to identify the biggest mistake of your life so far. 69%, almost 70%, were willing to admit to one. Again, 1949, so you can think of the era or whatever else. Older study, but run with us for a second. 70% of adults effectively said, yeah, I have, I have a big mistake. The winner, by some margin, back in 1949, was not getting more education, mentioned by 22% of respondents. 10% said they had made mistakes in marriage. 8% said they had chosen the wrong job. Then four years later, in 1953, Gallup conducted another poll. Generally speaking, if you could live your life over again, would you live it in much the same way as you have, or would you live it differently? Less than 40% of people said they would live differently if they could do it again. 
Landman cannot explain this momentous decline, right? Because 70% said, oh, there's mistakes. I would not, I would not make again. And then here it's like, yet only 40% said they would change those or whatever. Landman cannot explain this momentous decline. Did Truman cut the rate of regret dramatically in just four years? It's a miracle. But the questions asked by the polls are simply different. The first is about mistakes, things you should not have done. The second is about regrets, things you would take back now if only you could, different things. In taking them back, you erase not only the mistakes, but everything in your subsequent life that flowed from those mistakes, which is a more disturbing prospect. No wonder the numbers dropped. Regretting a mistake, Satya says, is not just admitting that you screwed up, but it's wishing that you hadn't, that you could subtract your mistake from the record of history along with its effects. So we don't need a time machine to mute the regrets that occupy midlife. What we need is a rational way to shift our perspective on past events in light of their relationship to the present, and Satya wants to give us some rational ways. And so he he often, throughout the book, gives kind of famed hypotheticals in, in uh, philosophical terms to make a point, and here's one of them. He talks about this guy named Parfit, who came up with an arresting hypothetical, and here it is, here is it. You have a medical condition that will affect any child you conceive in the next three months. The child's going to be born with a serious incurable disorder that affects his quality of life. He'll have chronic joint pain, say, or recurrent migraines. Since there is no urgent reason for you to conceive right now, Parfit concludes, and it's hypothetical, right? Parfit concludes that you should wait. But the immediate puzzle is why. After all, if you conceive and give birth to a child, he can't complain that he would have been better off if you'd waited. He would not exist at all. You would have had some other child months or years later if you had become a parent then. What matters for us, however, is not this puzzle, which has many solutions, but it's your attitude toward the past. So here's your son, growing, thriving, struggling. His, his life is good on the whole, though it is marred by the suffering suggested in the, 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 the terms of the hypothetical. There's predictable suffering that your son has because you conceived in those three months. Back when you could, you should have chosen to wait, but now... Can you regret your decision? Should you wish to rewrite the past, erase your son's existence, and start over? There's pressure to say no. You should have waited, but you're glad you didn't. So I have regrets, but I have no regrets. I think, hmm, what do we get from that? Well, he goes on to another way of looking at this. He says, well, maybe one way to look at it is to think about your tolerance for risk. Some people are, and most people, are risk-averse. The question is how much. And maybe we need to factor that into, like, where we've landed. And he tells a story of a woman named Nat whom I presume is short in the, I'm sure it's a fictional name, for Natalie, who was a very talented, I think, pianist in her youth, thought she could pursue, you know, the arts, piano, um, or she could become a lawyer, which sounded even up front as duller, um, but more stable, of course. And she chose law. And what she found, if I'm remembering, was it was, you know, it was an okay job. She didn't have tremendous complaints and it did some good things. She found her husband through doing it, you know, did provide a stable income, but it wasn't nearly as much fun as piano. Anyway, so we're going to talk about Nat for a second. Nat, deciding between music and law, ends up being glad she made a choice that she regards as a mistake. In the jargon of economists, Nat is mildly risk averse. She's willing to gamble a little, but not too much. Suppose she's asked to choose between two bets. Ticket A pays $40 if a coin comes up head, heads and $10 if it comes up tails. Ticket B, so ticket A, $40 heads, $10 tails. Ticket B pays $100 for heads, but nothing for tails. Nat would choose ticket B, $100 for heads, nothing for tails. She thinks it's irrational not to do so. 
the expected value of ticket A, the value of the payoffs discounted by probability, is $25. The expected value of ticket B is $50. On the other hand, if she had to choose between ticket B and $40 in the hand, she would refuse to gamble. She thinks that's sensible too. What has this got to do with major life decisions? So here's the point. The point is that from Nat's perspective, law is like ticket A. It's a gamble with a low ceiling, but a fairly high floor. Things may go better or worse, but she will likely end up at a job with decent pay and have a reasonable quality of life. Music is ticket B. It's got a higher ceiling, but a lower floor. Looking back, her situation has changed. Life as a lawyer turned out fine. Nat doesn't hate her job. It pays well. She has her husband, Al, her friends, hobbies, vacations. Among the range of outcomes she anticipated, this is pretty good. It's closer to $40 than $10. Nat still believes she made a bad decision when she quit piano, though, choosing ticket A over ticket B. But the question of regret is different. A mistake, yes. Regret, no. Would she now give up her life as a successful lawyer for a gamble she cannot predict? The answer may well be no. So long as your actual life, Satya tells us, is good enough and you are sufficiently risk-averse, it's perfectly rational to be content with how things are, even though they could have been much better, and even though you still believe that they went wrong. So that's the regret portion of thinking about midlife. Now as you look at the impending death um, uh, part of why people sometimes have midlife crisis. Midlife is obviously famously the time when suddenly it hits you that while, of course, you always knew that you would die someday, when we're 20 and we know that we're going to die someday, and if, let's say, hypothetically, we think, and that might be when I'm 80, well, you've got three more, you know, whole lifetimes to live between 20 and 40, 40, 60, 60, and 80. So it's almost impossible to take seriously. But if you think you might die at 80 and you hit 50, well, at that point, it's like a little bit more, you've, have, you've got parents who may have died or may be in poor health. You see it one generation in front of you hitting that particular experience, and it becomes real. What do we, how do we feel about that? Is that part of the midlife crisis? What, what should that lead us to think? Here are some thoughts from Satya. He's got three ultimate ways to think about it. And I actually think these are pretty good. I like these. The idea that philosophy will console us in our mortality is an old one, he says. When essayist Michel de Montaigne wrote in 1580, to philosophize is to learn how to die, he was joining a tradition that went back through Roman philosopher Cicero in the first century BCE all the way to Socrates, drinking hemlock in an Athenian prison. Montaigne's philosophical turn was caused in part by the death of his closest friend, Etienne de la Boate, in part by a riding accident in which he himself was nearly killed. Etienne was 33, Michel was 36. Montaigne went on to perform a legendary feat of self-exploration, writing the 500,000 words of his humane inquiring essays, whose topics range from cannibalism to pedantry to the human thumb. But his philosophizing ends in failure. If you do not know how to die, never mind, he urges ruefully in his penultimate essay, nature will tell you how to do it on the spot. That's his only answer. So philosophers, Satya says, who have spilled considerable ink alleging that immortal life is not what it's cracked up to be, though. Nor is it just philosophers who have it in for immortality. From withered Tithonus, the mythic Greek who was granted immortality but not eternal youth, to the nomadic exiled family of Natalie Babbitt's children's classic, Tuck Everlasting, Almost every novel, play, or film about living forever is a dystopia. However wonderful it might be to live forever, isn't there something disproportionate in a painful longing for what is humanly impossible, in mourning one's mortality as if it were a grave misfortune rather than the absence of a superpower? 
A friend shares his love of Superman and the wish that he too could be faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Makes sense to me. Who wouldn't want that? But when I see him months later, he looks terrible. I assume this is where it becomes a fictional story. He has been waking in a cold sweat, angst-ridden, bitter at the fact that he cannot fire laser beams from his eyes, railing at his merely human, not Kryptonian powers. He needs to get a grip. It is no misfortune to lack capacities that exceed the range of human possibilities, not something that should fill you with despair. How is a desire for immortality different? Even if being immortal is a very great good, it's like the ability to fly, a magical quality whose absence it is perverse to more. So here's his option one of how to think about your impending death when you see it in front of you in midlife is to sigh and say, alas, of course, it's understandable to yearn for it, but I also could yearn to fly. You know, it's just, it's, it's just it's hard to mourn something that would be a superpower. I like that. Now, again, this is where I think if you're coming from the Christian tradition in particular, my own, you know, what we're told is you don't have to mourn death, right? Because there's eternal life, right? And it gets better. And, uh, and I believe it. So in that sense, maybe that it invalidates this line of thought. That said, maybe just looking at myself or looking at others, it is a, on the one hand, on the other hand, I entirely believe in eternal life. Um, but I don't know. I'm not looking to kill myself or have my life end just now. I feel like there's a lot of good in being alive. I'm not trying to shorten anything to get this really good thing called eternal life. In which case then I do feel all the things that any human being feels of like, wow, I have, my father's been dead for a few years. You know, my mother is in her late eighties. My in-laws are having significant health issues. You know, you see it one generation ahead. I cannot tell you how often my wife and I, and we've done this frankly since early in our marriage, but do talk about, oh, how should we think about the possibility of dementia or things like who goes first, you know, that it, because it's just the human condition, right? Because you see it in the generations in front of you, if nothing else. And so in that sense, going back to the philosophical side, I kind of like these three things that Tia gives without discounting at all my belief in eternal life. So what uh, belief, uh, perspective one is, well, alas, you don't have a superpower. Everyone dies just like no one flies, you know, so be it. Then he has a second suggestion to meditate on prenatal existence, that meditate on the fact that before you were born, so far as you know, there was nothing. Now, whether or not that's the facts, again, I don't really quite know how, as much as I know the Christian tradition, and I've read my share of theology, do I even know what the Christian stance is on consciousness before birth? Um, I'm not sure I do. But there is this guy we looked at, what's the last podcast we did? This guy, Mo Gaudat, who has this theory on the um, that consciousness is eternal. And so in our earthly form, when we're born, we kind of tap into a consciousness that has existed beforehand. And then when we die, our, our physical body leaves it, but consciousness continues. There are actually Christian and other contemplatives who take Gaudat's position, who believe it to be true, that that is a picture of eternal life. So maybe. Um, anyway, from Satya's perspective... Reflect on the fact that so far as you know, there was just nothingness before you were born. Are you mourning that? Or is it like, that's no, cool. That was, I'm not mad that there was nothingness. There just was nothingness. And that's what it's going to be true after I am dead. And so in one sense, meditating on that might think, eh, it won't be so bad. And his third perspective, um, and I'm not even sure this might be what I, t what I created out of his perspectives, but I found myself thinking from the things he said something like this. We are all offered a chain of days of life as human beings albeit a chain shorter than that that gets offered to some other people, but longer than some others get. But the being alive that you experience 
on a day a week before you die, say, however compromised, is in its being aliveness, not entirely different than what you experienced on a day when you were 22. So if we get the succession of lives in which of days in which we get this thing called being alive on that day, even one that's quite close to our impending death, we are still alive in just the same way we were alive when we were five. So it's still a gift. It may be compromised. It may be, you know, whatever. But it's still, right up to the time we don't have it, we have it. And that's worth celebrating. But then we get to his, I think it's his his punchline. So all these perspectives I found very helpful. But if does he have one piece of advice? I think if he has one piece of advice, it comes down to this, that we need to understand what he calls telic versus atelic activities. Let me explain and let him explain what those are. He says, when I finish this book that he's writing, I will be glad to have done something that I believe is worth doing, but I will have to say goodbye to a project that has meant a lot to me. That's going to leave a hole in my life. The sense of repetition and futility, the emptiness of satisfied desire. So it's something I wanted to do, then I finished it, but then, oh, I don't have that thing anymore. I've been sort of working on a book myself. And thankfully, I'm looks like there may be possibilities for it. So I'm back at it, kind of making it good. But for a period of time where I was sort of waiting to figure out what's next, I, d- I did miss it. I thought I kind of enjoyed doing that. And maybe I could write another one. I don't know, which we'll talk about that urge as well. So he says, look, I'm not alone in feeling this. There's some project you enjoy, it's done, and then you feel a loss. Maybe you felt that too, mired in the pursuits of middle age, one after the other of these projects, wondering what is next. We are textbook casualties of the midlife crisis then striving to achieve what seems worthwhile, succeeding well enough, yet at the same time restless and unfulfilled. The challenge is not frustration, it's getting what you want. The puzzle is that success can seem like failure. Suppose you do get what you want, your desire at last fulfilled. You should be delighted. Instead, you're aimless and depressed. Your pursuit is over and you have nothing to do. Consider the activities that make up your life, getting a job, filing reports, driving home from work, listening to music, going for a walk. Borrowing jargon from, from linguistics, we can say that some activities are telic. They aim at terminal states at which they are finished and exhausted. Telic comes from the Greek telos, or end, the root of teleology. So telic activities are things you do them and then they're done. Driving home is telic. It is done when you get home. So are projects like getting married or writing a book. Other activities, though, are atelic. They do not aim at a point of termination or exhaustion, a final state in which they have been achieved. As well as walking from point A to point B, you can go for a walk with no particular destination. That's an atelic activity. So is listening to music, hanging out with friends or family, or thinking about midlife. You can stop doing these things. You eventually will stop doing these things, but you can't complete them. That's the important point. And that's the problem with being consumed by plans, with being obsessed by getting things done. If your sources of meaning are overwhelmingly telic, then whatever their value, their final existential or ameliorative value, ameliorative I think just means helping out people, they are schemes for which success could only mean cessation. It's as if you are striving to eradicate meaning from your life, right? Because then you're going to finish this important project and then it's done and you have no meaning because the thing that was giving you meaning is done. It's saved only by the fact that there's too much of it or that you keep on finding more things to do. It is this engine of self-destruction that powers my midlife crisis, he says, and perhaps a part of yours. I've spent four decades acquiring a taste and aptitude for the telic, for achievement, for the next big thing, for personal and professional success, only to feel the void within. Fulfillment always lies in telic activities in the future or the past. That's no way to live. Relationships can fail. Love can be imperfect. It can fade. And philosophy is not going to change that. But if the source of your frustration is a telic attitude to love, a sense of love's exhaustibility, 
then having an affair isn't going to help you any. Think of Count Vronsky seducing Anna Karenina. This is from Tolstoy. He soon felt that the realization of his longing gave him only one grain of the mountain of bliss he'd anticipated. So Vronsky was seducing Anna Karenina. He gets her. Oh my gosh, I've got the person I was seducing. But if he got a mountain, he gets one grain of dirt of satisfaction when he expected a mountain. That realization showed him the eternal error men make by imagining that happiness consists in the gratification of their wishes. Getting what we want can be a letdown. So long as starting over means adopting new goals, Satya tells us, it will at most distract you from the structural defect in your life. Keeping busy is a diversion, but it treats the symptom, not the cause. So love isn't a project, but other things are, and some of them surely matter. It would be callous to deny the ameliorative value of curing a disease or ending a war. So it's not like Tila things are bad, end the war, cure the disease. It would be shallow to deny the existential value of art, of reading a novel, right? Because when you finish it, it's over. Of painting a picture, of singing a song. These are all telic activities. They're all worthwhile. We shouldn't pretend otherwise. Walking is atelic. Unlike walking home, it does not aim at its own completion, a point at which there's no more to do. Advising you to go for a walk may seem like a rather lame response to the angst of your midlife crisis. While it probably won't hurt, it's not the revelation you sought. You can't build your life around taking a walk, as you might build it around the narrative of your career, your relationships, your children. But, he says, atelic activities correspond to each of the projects that structure your life. And this, I think, is his, to my mind, it's his big insight. So you could say, and I think it would be true to say, that he's talking about a familiar piece of wisdom, that to focus on the process, not the destination. Atelic, telic. And he is, I think, saying that. But what's interesting to me is he's also saying you've got to sort of pay attention to atelic stuff that's behind the telic stuff, the, the the goals. There's something bigger than just writing the book, putting the kid to bed, whatever, and he's going to tell us how to think about that. So he says, well, take me in writing this book. In doing so, I am writing and thinking about philosophy. That's an atelic activity. This matters, I think, not just as part of finishing the book, but in its own right. If the project of writing the book gives meaning to my life, why not the non-project of doing philosophy, which has no end? So he's not just writing the book, he's also doing philosophy. That's atelic. The book is just one part of that flow. If my problem is an excessive investment in telic activities, the solution is to love their atelic counterparts. That's, I think, the big insight here. To find meaning in the process, not the project. So that goes back to the familiar wisdom, right? But how do you find meaning in the project? You think about what's atelic behind the telic. He says, if your problem is mine, the solution will work for you because they do not aim at states, terminal states, states that are going to end. Atelic activities are not exhaustible. So if you want to walk home and yet you are not there, your action is incomplete. It's fulfillment still to come. When you get there, it's all over. If you value going for a walk by contrast, then in wandering through the park, you've got exactly what you want. There's no more to going for a walk than what you were doing right now. You're not on your way to achieving a goal. When you cook dinner for your kids, help them finish their homework and put them to bed, telic activities through and through, you engage in the atelic activity of parenting. Unlike dinner and homework, parenting is complete at every instance. It's a process, not a project. And as I have five kids, they're now young adults, so I see them in the stages of being babies to, you know, toddlers, et cetera, all the way through young adults. It's so true. Parenting is, is an atelic activity. It's really never going anywhere, although any given project does. Working hard is an atelic activity. It's inexhaustibly present. And where completion has value, engagement has value too. And then he, he gives a, a shot in the arm to something we talk about a bunch here on the Pocket Contemplative. He says, consider meditation. 
Meditation fosters an intuitive, not merely intellective grasp of the meaning and value of atelic activities. So when we meditate, we're still to what is, to the bigger picture. And he's going to close by going back to his opening story about John Stuart Mill's big depression, you know, the guy who'd focused on the greatest good for the greatest number of people and then had a complete crash and then realized, I like Wordsworth, and that helped him. So why, again, having thought about all this stuff, does the goal of our life need to be more than, say, achieving the greatest good for the greatest number of people? He says, our quest began with Mill's impetuous dream, his plan for social reform, his vision of success, and his despair. To eradicate useless suffering is a noble aim, but that speaks to needs we would be better off without. Eradicating useless suffering has a value that is ameliorative, not existential. There's got to be more to life. And that, that goal of eradicating useless suffering is also unremittingly telic. When Mill asked how he would feel if by some chance his ambitions came to pass, he imagined a final state, a permanent utopia in which he had nothing to do. The purpose of his life had been erased. When we strive for justice in a better world, we need the power of now as much as anywhere. To focus on the telic is to focus all too often on the distance and precariousness of our goals, to eradicate poverty or famine or war, to thwart the worst effects of global warming. In this thing called Bento's sketchbook, his unclassifiable illustrated essay, art critic John Berger reflects on the social activism of Arundhati Roy. This is a quote from Berger. Every profound political protest is an appeal to a justice that is absent and is accompanied by a hope that in the future this justice will be established. This hope, however, is not the first reason the protest is being made. This strike me as really interesting. One protests because not to protest would be too humiliating, too diminishing, too deadly. One protests by building a barricade, taking up arms, going on a hunger strike, linking arms, shouting, writing, in order to save the present moment, whatever the future holds. A protest is not principally a sacrifice made for some alternative, more just future. It's an inconsequential redemption of the present. The problem is how to live time and again with the adjective inconsequential. And I'm going to leave you on that note as we think about the telic versus the atelic, et cetera, even though it's a depressing note. I had to live with the fact that a protest might be inconsequential. I think in this guy Berger's perspective, it's actually good to come to terms with that. You're doing it to redeem this moment not just to arrive at some future state where this injustice is over because it'd be humiliating to not stand up in the face of the injustice right now. That's atelic. All right. Well, I don't know if you're the sort of philosophical bent person who enjoys this sort of stuff. I am dead center of the target. So I totally did to the point that I got in touch with Dr. Satya to talk more, which we will do next time. And I look forward to chatting again with you then. 